This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org slash UT. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. You would follow Jesus with the rest of, for the rest of your life. And... One of the ways that that will happen, we believe, is for you to know and believe in the doctrine of justification. So that sounds kind of intense and big. Let me explain what that is. Doctrine is just another name for like teaching. So the, te- the, bi- the biblical teaching of justification by faith. And justification, we've been saying, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, is not how you get right with God. A lot of times that's how we think about Christianity, that you need to get right with God. The Bible doesn't actually talk as much about you getting right with God. It talks much more about how God makes you right with him. Justification is how God makes you right with him. And in RUF, what we do every week, we come to the Bible and we we ask big questions of it. And we actually believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And it's telling us the truth about who he is. And what I want you to see today is this, there's a story that we're going to read that Jesus told. Last week, we read the first half of it, kind of the more famous half of it. And today, we're going to look at this. If you're taking notes, you can, the sermon title tonight is, What Won't Justify You? We're going to look at the second half of this story of the prodigal son. We're going to look at what won't justify you. Because I, what I hope that tonight, will, the way I hope this will serve you, is that you'll be disabused of a common misconception that people have of justification. It's a very common misconception that many of us have and that I often slip back into about how we are justified, how we are made right in God's sight. So let's pray and ask God to help us and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you so much for the blessing it is to see each other and to be together. We thank you that you have made us uh, in your image and that because we're in your image, we are relational because you are relational, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, I think we probably experience that and feel that even more now than we ever have before as we've experienced such isolation. And we thank you and praise you that we can be um, in this room gathered together now. And we pray, uh, I pray for anyone who's here and that they would, that you would meet them where they're at uh, for people who maybe don't believe in you or who are tired or apathetic or skeptical or cynical. Lord, we pray that you would meet us and that we would see you in your word. And we ask all this in Jesus name. Amen. So I want to set up tonight by suggesting to you that the worst kind of lost you can be is to not know that you're lost. There's a kind of lost to be where you don't realize it, that you're lost. And that's the, that's the most dangerous kind. So my brother, his first job out of business school, he started working for General Electric and he, they had him traveling all over the place and he was working crazy long hours. And one, uh, one night he was flying from Chicago and he had to be at a business meeting in Nashville the next morning. And he was prepping for it, had his laptop out, he's typing, working on it. And everyone in the, you know, he's kind of in like his, his gate, his terminal or whatever. And he notices like all the people around him stand up, get in line. And he's just like, I'm going to grind this out, finish it up. I'll just like hop on as soon as everyone else is like loaded the, 
the plane. So he finishes up his stuff. He sees the lines kind of like dwindled. He gets, you know, folds his um, laptop, puts it in his briefcase, gets in the line, goes through, puts all of his stuff away, sits down, gets on his BlackBerry. I think he had a BlackBerry back then. <laughs> he gets on his BlackBerry, does a couple of quick emails, puts it away. The plane is like taxiing down the runway now. He can't, he can't be on it anymore. Finally, like, kind of comes to himself and sees everyone around him. He looks at the person next to him. He's like, so what brings you to Nashville? And they're like, I'm not going to Nashville. He's like, what do you mean you're not going to Nashville? This plane's going to Nashville. They're like, no, it's not. And then the person to his right's like, no, it's not. And then the person behind him is like, no, it's not. And the person in front is like, no, it's not. He's like, ah! yeah. The plane was going to Finland. Actually, it wasn't going to Finland. It was going to Louisville. But wouldn't it be a better story if it was going to Finland? It was going to Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> it was going to Louisville, Kentucky. But he thought he was going to Nashville. He thought he was on the right plane. And because he had no idea that he was completely lost, he missed his meeting, totally ruined. Like The worst kind of lost to be is to not know that you're lost. Jesus tells this story that we're going to look at now. In the midst of a lot of people who are lost and they don't know it. That's why he tells this story. So I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read this slowly and kind of like break down a little bit, some of it for review in case you missed last week since we focused on the first half, because you kind of have to know what happened to get the second half. Um, so, first, set the context Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Tax collectors and sinners. These are, this is like biblical subtext for, the subtext of this is like the prostitutes are there. The tax collectors would be like the scam artists, the sleaze bags, the alcoholics. They're all gathered around Jesus. And I want you to imagine what kind of people that would look like in like the 21st century. This famous teacher has come and all of those people are gathered around him. But they're not the only ones who are gathered around him. Keep reading. Verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Pharisees and scribes. Those would be like me. (laughs) Like church guys. Religious guys. That, like, culturally speaking, they were viewed as like the biblical teachers of the day. And they they hear of this famous rabbi. They come, they turn up, they go to see him, and like, like, why is he spending time with these kinds of people? And then Jesus begins telling stories. He begins telling lost and found stories. He tells a story about a lost sheep and this, these ninety nine sheep that aren't lost, and this one lost sheep. And the shepherd goes out and he finds a lost sheep, and there's more rejoicing over this one lost sheep. Then over the 99 that are already found, and then Jesus says there's the same amount of rejoicing over one sinner who returns to God than 99 righteous people. And then he tells a story of a, a woman losing a coin and searching and finding this lost coin and rejoicing and celebrating over it. And then in the midst of this crowd, he tells this story. It's, his most, it's probably his most famous story that Jesus ever tells. But oddly enough, a lot of times when we teach it, we only teach the first half of the story. You'll see what I mean. If you've you've been around the church much, you'll probably recognize this story. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Okay, pause. We talked about this last week. 
So the son, this younger son comes up to his dad and he's like, dad, I want the stuff that I'm going to get when you die. In other words, dad, like you are as good as dead to me, but I want your stuff. I don't want you, but I want your stuff. Give me the stuff that I'm going to get when you die and I'm out of here. Incredibly offensive, hurtful thing for the son to do. But the dad does it. Look at verse uh, 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. Pause. The reckless living, part of it, we know, a lot of it, was he was he's, he's been on prostitutes. We hear that later in the story. That's the reckless living. He goes to a faraway country and he spends it all on prostitutes. 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Pause. Um, These are all Jews who are hearing this story. When they hear that line, many of them probably would have been like, pigs, Not not kosher. Not clean. For someone to work among pigs, they would have been defiled. They would have defiled themselves ceremonially to work among pigs. And not only is he working among them, he's feeding them. He's feeding these animals that he can't himself eat. They're that dirty. Verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the, pig, with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And as he arose and came to his father, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, which means his father had been looking for him, waiting for him to return. He saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Pause. His son is ceremonially unclean. His son shows up smelling like the pigsty, smelling like prostitutes. And his son shows up and his father would have ceremonially been defiling himself to even touch his son. But he doesn't just touch him. He embraces him and he kisses him and he shows him incredible, radical grace and mercy. And the son starts to give his speech. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And I That's usually where we stop the story. That's usually all that we talk about with this story. And I can kind of imagine like in the crowd, when Jesus is telling that story, the religious people in the crowd kind of looking around and being like, oh, this is so nice that he's telling this. About how like, you know, this guy who was out spending the family fortune on fast living is redeemed. And like, look at all these sinners around. Jesus is being kind to them. And he's, he's telling them that God shows grace. But the story isn't over because now Jesus is about to write them into the story. Keep reading. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Think about what, how the temperature in the room probably changed when Jesus told the second half of that story. All these people who are grumbling about him sitting and being with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus tells a story. I, I think that it's this story and stories like it. It's why the religious people wanted to kill him. It's why they did kill him. The people who killed Jesus were the religious people. Because he was telling stories like this. Radical stories about who God actually is. And this story is here for you to know from the lips of God himself. He claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. And he comes and he says, I'm going to tell you what I'm like. I'm like this father. You need to hear that this is what I'm like. And the older brother is lost, but he doesn't know it. It's the worst kind of loss to be. To, he's, been, he's been around the Father his whole life. But spiritual proximity does not equal spiritual maturity. You can be around Christian things. You can be around God your whole life and not have a relationship with him. And that's what's happening with this older brother. He's been doing all of the things and he doesn't have a relationship with his father. And so you see his first response to the father's grace in verse 28, did you see what he does? He's angry about it. He hears the, you know, he walks up from the field. He's been working all day and he's just like, like there is, it's a loud enough party that he hears the music from the field. He can smell the fattened calf cooking. It probably smelled awesome. They probably didn't get to eat that fattened calf very often back then. He's walking up. He hears the music, the dancing. What is it? Your brother, your screw up brother has come back and your father killed the fattened calf for him. We're throwing the party. He hates it. He hates the grace of the Father for the Son. And do you see why he hates it? All these years I've been serving you. He says, in other translations, it says, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've been doing all of the right things, and you've never given me a goat so I can celebrate. By the way, he doesn't say so I can celebrate with you. You've never given me a goat so I can celebrate with my friends. See, here's the thing. The younger brother wanted the father's stuff and not the father. The older brother is the same way. Father, I want your goat, but I don't want to celebrate with you. I want your things, but I don't want you. And his, his way of going about getting his father's things is just a little more manipulative and insidious than the younger brother. The younger brother just comes out and says it. Like, I don't want you. I want your stuff. The older brother is trying to get it by working for it. And we act the same way with God. We try to get his things, but we don't really want him. So maybe, 
Maybe you feel a sense of guilt that you kind of walk around with. Or you don't feel at peace or you're afraid of dying. And so you want God to like to help you with that. You want him, you want his stuff, you want his eternal life, or you want his peace, or you want his blessing. And so the way that you go about that is, I'm gonna go to RUF tonight. I'm gonna start going to church. I'm gonna start reading my Bible more. I'm gonna get serious about it now. I'm gonna get serious about my faith. My hope is in me. I'm gonna get serious about it. It's gonna be about me doing it. That's older brother thinking. That's slave work thinking. Slaving in the field. And Jesus is telling the story because he doesn't want you to be lost and not know you're lost. He's telling the story to the Pharisees, not to like punk them and be like, boom, schooled. He's telling them because he loves them. And he sees that they're lost and they don't know that they're lost. We all believe this. We, we think that God, um, that God deals with us based on what we do. I'll give you a, um, I'll give you an example. I remember feeling this way when I would sit down in seminary and I'd have like a test and it was maybe a test that I hadn't studied enough for or read enough for. And you know, you have that little like feeling flare up inside you when you're not ready for a test and you're sitting down, you're like, oh man, this could be bad. And it's kind of like the first time in a month that you've thought of praying. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like that, one, that moment of desperation comes. You're like, I have nowhere else to turn to. I can't study anymore. I've got to do something. I'm just going to pray. Have you ever like stopped and not prayed in that moment? Because you, you're like, I can't slink back to God right now and pray. I haven't prayed for like a month. I can't just be like, hey, like, God, I know we haven't talked for like a month, but can you come through on a solid with me real quick on this grade that I need to get an A in? Like, sorry, I haven't been in touch lately, but like, have you ever stopped that prayer? Do you know why we stop that? Because we think he deals with us based on what we do. Like, think about if the opposite were true. If you had been reading your Bible every day, if you've been going to RUF every week, you've been going to church every week, and then you sit down, you have that fear flare up inside of you. I haven't stayed up for this test. Oh, but I can definitely pray because I've been like doing all this good stuff. And so God's going to hook me up now. We think that way. That God somehow owes us. And that's how the older brother is acting. He thinks that God, he can get God to owe him. But there's no hope in that. In fact, if your goal is to get God to owe you, You'll never be a son. You'll always be a slave. This son is, is, is lost actually because of his righteousness, because of his self-righteousness. It's very possible that for you, the thing that could keep you from a relationship with God is not all the bad things that you've done. It's the good things. The good things that you think make you worthy of God's love that can actually make you into a slave rather than a son or a daughter. And Jesus knows this and he's warning them. It's, the Bible says it clearly here in Galatians 2.16. What won't justify you? Listen, Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. 
You're not made right with God by works of the law. You can't work it or do it or slave away long enough. You can't accrue enough credit for God to let you into his party. If you believe that God dispenses his love based on your performance, you will stay a slave in the field. And God is not after your behavior. He's not fundamentally, like, fundamentally concerned with your behavior modification. He's fundamentally concerned with your heart. He's not fundamentally concerned with your habits. He's concerned about your heart. There are people who have good Christian habits who go straight to hell. And Jesus says so much in Matthew 7. Listen, he says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, which later he says, the will of my father is that you would believe in the son. Verse 22, on the last day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Do you hear that resume? I mean, anyone here cast out a demon lately? It's a pretty good resume marker, right? Cast out a demon in your name. I did mighty works in your name. And Jesus says, there will be people with those kinds of spiritual habits in their life. And I'll look upon them and I'll say, I don't know you. You've been working in the field right next to where we were trying to throw this party. You've been working in the field your whole life right there. You've had great Christian proximity to all this stuff. And I don't know you. Because you've been trusting in yourself. And Jesus is telling this story to people like me. When I heard, I'll, tell, I'll just be honest with y'all. This like rocked me when I heard this. The first time preached to me. I'll never forget it. I'd never heard the older brother preached. I'd only ever heard the prodigal son. This is not about the prodigal. This story is about two, two lost sons. Not one, two. And I'm such an older brother. So self-righteous. So prone to think that God deals with me based on my behavior. That he gets upset with me and doesn't like me because I'm not doing enough. And Jesus mercifully and kindly is telling us this story. So that we would not be lost and not know that we're lost. The father wants a child. He doesn't want a slave. Did you hear when the younger brother comes back in verse 19? Did you hear like his um, the speech that he's like prepared? Verse 19, he says, here's a speech. I'm going right, to get back to my dad. I'm going to look at my dad. I'm going to say, no, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the younger brother's plan too is to be like, I'm going to work it off. I'm going to be a hired servant. I'm no longer worthy. Be, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me as, a high, as one of your servants. And when the father sees him, he runs out. He like hugs him, kisses him. He's like getting the fattened calf on the pit. He's like, th- and, and you can hear the son's like trying to get his speech out. Look at verse 21. He says, father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father won't let him finish the speech. He, as soon as the father hears, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's like, no, 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 stop. Don't, don't talk about like being a servant and like you're going to work this off. Go get the robe. Get the music on. Let's get it bumping. My son is back. That's who God is. He doesn't want slaves. He wants children. 
this older brother is angry. You know, um, one of the reasons that I think he's angry, he's paying for the party. Think about it. The younger brother goes and gets all of his share of his inheritance. So now everything that the father owns, guess who's, who's going to get it when the father dies? The older brother. And now he sees all of that stuff being spent. His money, his resources, his fattened calf, all of that is getting spent on the younger brother and he's incensed by it. But the good news for you and for me is that there's a better older brother in this story. And it's the person telling the story. Jesus is, the Bible tells us, our older brother. He is our brother. And just like the, the older brother here in this story unwillingly pays for the price of the feast. Jesus of Nazareth, however, became, God became a man, the Bible is claiming. And he pays for the entrance of the feast for prodigals like me and like you. He pays the entry with his very life. Listen to how Philippians 2 describes it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Jesus was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He paid, paid for it. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Older brothers in the room, real quick, listen to me. I'm saying this to myself too, I'm an older brother. How can we be so proud to think that Jesus' payment isn't enough. That, that, God, that God sending his only begotten son to become a man, to live a perfect life, to die a brutal and horrific death on a garbage dump outside of a city in front of his mother naked, that somehow that that is not enough of a sacrifice for us to get into heaven, that we need to add our little like crumbs of righteousness and like devotionals and church attendance and witnessing and doing all these things that somehow that is going to, that's going to be the thing that pushes over the top. Not like the second person of the Trinity becoming a man and dying. You see how proud that is? The, the gospel completely humbles us. A proud Christian is like the most ironic thing ever. Christians have nothing to be proud of because what we believe is that there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves, that God did it all. He became a man and he saved us. He rescued us and he holds that rescue out to anyone. And here's the, here's the good news. Earlier I said, you heard me say, if you believe that God dispenses his love based on your performance, you'll stay a slave in the field. If you believe that, that you get love based on your performance. There, here's the reality though. God does dispense his love based on performance. But for the Christian, he dispenses love based on the performance of his son. So when God looks at you, the love that he pours out upon you is not based on what you have done, but based on what the work of Jesus has done. Based on the life of Jesus. So how do you get this righteousness? How do you, if if you don't get justified by works of the law, how do you get justified? Let's go back to Galatians 2. 
It says this, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but simply through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The father, the father has come out to this older brother and he's entreating him. He's pleading with him. Come into the party. Come into my party. Don't stay out in the field trying to work to get your own party. Come in to mine. And it's yours. He says, everything I have is yours. If you come in. So what? Some of y'all might be, usually when I teach this, like this Bible study um, with folks, students will be like, okay, so like, why do, why like obey God at all? If like, he just is going to like give us grace no matter what we do. And like, we can be big sinners and then like be the prodigal and come back and like get forgiven. Like, why don't we just all go like rob a bank and then like ask God to forgive us? You know, like we all have our masks on. Like we can go do it right now. Like, why not? Let's go. Paul actually asks that question, by the way, when he's talking about this in Romans five, he's talking about how big God's grace is and that God's grace covers any sin and everything. His next, the next verse in Romans six, one, he says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Like, should we just sin more so we can get more grace? And his answer is by no means, by no means we shouldn't. Why? I'll illustrate with this story. It's my closing illustration. Um, a couple weeks ago, I saw a video of Kobe Bryant. It's an old interview. I've never seen it before. I love basketball, huge basketball fan, but I've never seen Kobe interviewed on this. He, um, he was remembering his relationship with his dad. Um, some of y'all may know Kobe's dad was actually the number one overall draft pick in the NBA draft, like, uh, like 1968 or something like that. Um, his name is Jelly Bean Bryant. That's an awesome, like basketball name. So swaggy. Jelly Bean Bryant. Um, so his dad was, didn't, didn't make it in the, in the league for, I think he played a couple years, but then he went and played in Europe for most of Kobe's life. That's why Kobe like spoke Italian and stuff. Cause he, he like grew up in Italy and his, when Kobe was 11 in the interview, I didn't, I did not know this about him. He said the summer that he played basketball when he was 11 years old on his team, he scored zero points. Kobe Bryant scored zero points. And the interviewer was like, why did you score zero points? And Kobe's like, because I sucked. I was horrible at basketball. And the interviewer's like, what changed? And Kobe says, well, at the end of the year, my dad, he was at my game, and he saw that I was upset that I hadn't scored any. My dad comes up to me and he says, son, I don't care if you ever score a point. I just love watching you play. And Kobe said, when my dad said that to me, it made me want to be the greatest basketball player who ever lived. You see, he had the security and the love of his father. And in response to the security and the love of his father, it made him, it made him want to to do something great. Not to get his father's love, but because he already had it. And the same is true for us. How do you think this younger brother is going to act around his father now? If his father like asks him to like mow the lawn the day after the party. 
He's probably going to do it. Not because he's like trying to earn the father's love. He already knows he has it. He showed up smelling like pigs and prostitutes and his dad kissed him, defiled himself and threw a party. Did you know that's who God is? He is that gracious. And he holds that grace out to anyone who would put their faith in him. That is how you're justified. That is how you're made right by God, not by you earning it. And I want you all to know that. God holds out eternal salvation to stinking, rotten sinners like me and like you who don't deserve it because he's good. And if you have it tonight, like if you're a Christian, rest in that. You have the smile of the Father. And if you don't yet believe, thank you for being here and processing this. We would love to talk to you about that. And I want you to know, I really think this is true. I really think that we have this kind of hope in the world, that God made this world and he entered into it. And he lived and died to save it. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this night. It's so good to be back together. Thank you for these people who, who came here. Um, we pray that you would be at work in our lives. You would help us to see the grace that you hold out to us um, and why that is good news. And we pray that you would give us the faith to believe. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.